Well, Shabbat Shalom, everyone that's here and online. Um, I am Bobby Smith, and this is our 10 a.m. teaching at Beth Adonai. And this morning, we are going to be talking about Purim. And I hope I pronounced that right. It's pronounced so many different ways. Um, but that's the way that I've learned to pronounce it, as Purim. Sometimes it's called Purim. And there's other pr pronunciations. Um, but we're going to study Purim. And the reason is, is because it's, uh, it's coming up this week. This is our week of Purim. And next week, we're actually going to have a celebration here on Shabbat. But we actually have uh, the festival itself is on Thursday, the 14th of Adar. So let's begin, as we should, with a word of prayer. Avinu Shabbat Shemayim, our Father in heaven. Father, we come before you this morning with humble hearts and with ears to listen and eyes to see what you will show us and, and allow us to hear. Father, thank you for your Shabbat and for the, um, the knowledge of your Shabbat and for this, this wonderful Moedim to come before you each and every week. Thank you for this synagogue that we're able to, um, to have and to utilize each week to draw nearer to you. Be with us this morning as we study your word. Open our hearts and our minds and touch us each as you can individually touch us in your own way. In Yeshua's name I pray. Amen. All right, so um, like I said, Purim's going to be uh, celebrated this week, Thursday, March 21st, which I always thought that the 21st of March was the first day of spring. I'm assuming it's going to be the first day of spring, but sometimes it's on the 20th and sometimes it's on the 22nd, from what I understand when you look at calendars. I'm not sure this year, but it's very, very close, the 20th this year. To truly understand Purim, we must place it in its historical perspective. In particular, we need to place it in its Jewish historical perspective. The first part of this teaching this morning is going to come from this book. Okay, there we go. That's uh, put out by Art Scroll called the Megillah. And interestingly enough, this is the very first publication that Art Scroll produced in 1976. Since 1976, they produced over 2,000 works. And their sole purpose was to take the scriptures, and the Hebrew version of the scriptures, and translate them into English so the, Eng the English-speaking world could study Torah in a way that was completely Jewish and not lose a lot of the, the translation from Hebrew to English or from Aramaic to English because everything wasn't in Hebrew. There was, it was Hebrew and Aramaic. So that was interesting to me. We have to have an overview of the period. Where is there in Esther an allusion in the Torah that says that, that I will surely con con conceal myself? I'm sorry. It's in Deuteronomy 31, 18. 
but I will surely have concealed my face, it says in that passage. In the days of Esther, there will be a concealment of the divine countenance, says Rashi. Ray Shamul Baryuda said that Esther sent to the sages, establish me the festival marking my miracle. And they sent back. They said, do you seek to arouse the jealousy of the nations toward us? And she said to them, I'm already inscribed in the royal chronicle of Medea and per Persia. That's in Megillah 7a. It's hard to imagine how the divine continents, the Lord, could be concealed during such a prof prophetic period. Surely the prophets would see it and reveal it in all its grandeur. In our, con in conf in our confused times, many wonder how we will know when Mashiach, the Messiah, arrives. Who will tell us? If only we had a prophet, then we would know. Then we would follow. This is the, um, the Jewish view of the Mashiach. They, they don't accept, accept Yeshua as being the Mashiach. So um, they don't see the Mashiach in our present day. They're looking for the Mashiach as a mysterious individual that's still going to come. There were still prophets during the Babylonian exile. Even in its closing years, Daniel, Mordecai, Baruch ben Neri, Ezra, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, and more were still on the scene. Fifty-two years after the destruction of the temple, a prophecy was fulfilled. I'm sorry? I can't understand. Oh, the phone. Okay, sorry. So 52 years after the destruction of the temple, of the temple, Cyrus, the king of Persia, gave the order that the house of God was to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. The prophet Isaiah had foretold about it 200 years before in Isaiah 45, one, chapter 1, chapter 4, and chapter 13. You know, there were prophets after this period of time. We read in the book of Acts that there was a prophet that came down to Syria, Antioch, and predicted that there would be a famine in the land, which came true. So um, we know that there were prophets that were, that were after this time. But in the, in the world of Judaism, they don't, they don't see that. It was two years before Ahasuerus, I'm sorry, Ahasuerus became king and over four, four, four years before the opening of the scene of this Miguela Esther. Now Miguela Esther just means the scroll of Esther. That's all Miguela means is the scroll of Esther. And here is a, um, a list of some of the prophets and how they um, corresponded to the time frame that we're talking about. To the Jewish people, intensely familiar with the prophecies of Isaiah, the gesture of Cyrus should have been a signal to converge upon Jerusalem to rebuild the temple that had been raised or razed by Nebuchadnezzar. Indeed, they should have considered it a rare opportunity that they, not Cyrus, was given the privilege of rebuilding the temple. They should have came down there in mass. Cyrus, 
who wept and groaned over the temple's destruction became God's chosen instrument to fulfill the ancient prophecy and bring the glory of the divine presence back to the holy mountain where Abraham bound Isaac to the altar, where Jacob beheld the heavenly ladder, where David set his hopes, and where Solomon built the temple of God. All these things were in the same place. The righteous Persian monarch gave the order that the Jews go home again, but only 42,000 indeed heeded his call. 42,000 heard the call of the prophecy, but millions stayed behind. When God hides his face, such are the effects. Confusion, hesitation, fear. What does God want from us? Where and how are we to do his bidding? And what is his bidding? This was the tapestry before which the actors in the Purim story entered the stage of history. The Jewish people were splintered and confused. Torah study was experiencing a renaissance in Babylon, but some of its outstanding sons were asking whether they as a nation, driven by its God from his land, still owed him more allegiance than a divorced woman driven from her home or her husband, or a freed slave sent away from the home of his master. A shocking question, one that can only be understood as one more saddening indication of the many veils behind which the divine countenance was hidden. Cyrus moved his royal capital to Shushan in the land of Elam. With him went Mordecai and Daniel, but they were not able to teach Torah in Elam as they had and as their peers were still doing in the flowering ac academies of Babylon. Elam was the seat of royal power. The source of Jewish hope was barren of Torah. More concealment of the divine continence. So I think it's important for us to kind of look at the world. Um, at the time of the Babylonian exile and how the Babylonians controlled this part of the world, you know, Israel and the Holy Land is at the gate of connecting three continents, Asia and Europe and Africa. On the left with the yellow highlight is the Babylonian Empire. The Persian Empire is on the right, and you can see it's kind of outlined in red. They really overlap each other. So the Babylonian exile happened first. The Persian Empire happened after the Babylonian Empire. And what the, the period of Esther, uh, the book of Esther, is written when the Persians were in control, were the, were the major world power. The work on the temple in Jerusalem proceeded under Cyrus, despite the harassment of hostile nations surrounding Jerusalem. Give you some idea of the work on the temple. In the last months of his reign, Cyrus had a change of heart. He forbade additional Jewish I mean, he, he forbade additional Jews to cross the river to the land of Israel. This set, setback caused the Jewish pioneers in Jerusalem to despair and halt the work they had begun so hopefully. But the rebuilding had not been outlawed. It had only been hindered. The reign of Cyrus did not long endure. Only two years after he ordered the rebuilding of the temple, 
Ahasuerus was the king of the vast empire of Persia. The new king was no friend of the Jews. Despite the impression common among us that he was an amiable drunkard who was manipulated by Haman, the sages make it very clear that he was thoroughly evil and that he hated the Jews even more than Haman did. His queen, now you guys need to understand something about me sometimes. I'm a little bit vocabulary challenged. So if I get these words wrong, these names. Oh no, I'm just talking about my, my pronouncing of the queen here. Queen Vashti, hopefully that's good. A granddaughter of Nebuchadnezzar, fulminated furiously against the feeble attempts to rebuild the temple. And she insisted that Osiris put an end to the holy task begun by Cyrus. Finally, a vicious letter arrived from Jerusalem. It was written by the enemies of the Jews, the sons of Haman, prominent among them, and accused them of building the temple as a prelude to a rebellion. Ahasuerus was only too happy to accept the advice of his queen and the reports of his observers. He ordered an end to the work in Jerusalem. So another veil descended upon descended over the divine continence, and it seemed plain that Isaiah's prophecy was not to be fulfilled. And if not, then perhaps indeed the Jewish people were no less adrift and alone than a wife and the slave driven from their former husband or master. There was another prophecy. It was more explicit and more imminent than Isaiah's that was a source of confusion at best and despair at worst. And this is from Jeremiah, chapter 29, verse 10. For thus said Hashem, after 70 years for Babylonia have been completed, I will attend to you and I will fulfill you my favorable promise to return you to this place. And then in Daniel 9:2, I, Daniel, contemplated the calculations, the number of years about which the word of Hashem had come to the prophet Jeremiah to complete the 70 years since the ruin of Jerusalem. Daniel 9.2. Was Cyrus order the fulfillment of the prophecy? Remember that was 58 years after the destruction. And if it were, how could it have been so easily nullified by Ahasuerus? Ahasuerus. What happens when God's face is hidden? We no longer see his hand guiding history. The successes and failures of the Jewish people were historically dependent upon their allegiance to God and his Torah. Torah and prophets are a series, series of pledges and warnings. When Jews were loyal to the dictates of their creator, they were rewarded in this world as well as the next. When they failed to heed his word, retribution was not long in coming. That was when God showed his face and his concern. When his countenance was concealed, Israel became a subject to the whims of rulers, the mutations of nature, and the vicissitudes of history. The smile of Cyrus seemed to matter more than the prophecy of Jeremiah, and the frown of Osiris was more distressed than chastisements of Moses. On the surface, 
it seemed clear that it was God who himself, that God had made himself distant. But in reality, even the concealment was ordained by the Torah. It was the Jewish people that had created the distance between itself and its God. By neglecting its total independence on God and its total, total belief in the supreme, the I, which is the Hebrew word anoki, of the first commandment in I am Hashem your God. The Jews created the conditions that beclouded the divine image and allowed a barrier to conceal his continence from them. But he was still there. It was a challenge of that confused, baffled, frightened generation to strip away the veils, or better said, to recognize that it was he who gave existence to all the veils, that nature itself was, illusory, was an illusory veil that could conceal him only from those who were blind. That was the challenge. It was the greatness of Mordecai and Esther that they found him for themselves and revealed him to others, and in so doing, illuminated every darkness down through the ages. Most of us have become indoctrinated with a non-Jewish, anti-Torah version of history. The existence or the destruction of the temple has been portrayed as a cultural sidelight to the existence of the Jewish nation-state. The Jerusalem awarded by Cyrus to his Jewish subjects consisted of only the city and its immediate environment, barely more than a dot on the world scene, and surely of no greater significance than any casual amnesty of a kind-hearted ruler. Saturated as many of us have become with this version of history, we are thoroughly convinced that whatever importance the Holy Land possessed was primarily because it was a crossroads of these three continents. Now that's not true of us as believers. The authentic history of the period as seen through Torah's eyes is far different from that. Jeremiah's prophecy hung like a sword over the heads of these absolute monarchs. To them, the temple was more than a building. It represented a philosophy of life that was dramatically opposed to theirs. The God of Israel was a power who had destroyed kings from Pharaoh to Sennacherib. If his people were to be redeemed, then he could well lay low the masters, the kings, and the rulers of all the lands. He had done, done this whenever he menaced his people in the past generations. Whenever his people were menaced in past generations, he had redeemed them. When Haman sought to persuade Ahasuerus that the Jews could be exterminated, the Jew-hating king was reluctant. He said this, I am afraid of, that their God will do to me what he did to my predecessors. Haman answered, The Jews are sleeping because they no longer perform the mitzvotes that they once did. They do not merit heavenly intercession. Isn't that interesting? Haman and Asaras saw more clearly than the Jews, that they saw the veils of concealment, but the two plotters knew that the darkness was not imposed from on high, 
they knew it was a, was a reflection of the Jewish attitudes. It was the Jewish people themselves that had caused this by not following the mitzvahs, by pulling away from their God. For more than a generation, Jeremiah's prophecy haunted monarchs and their advisors. The Lord of hosts said that Babylon would be ascendant for 70 years and that the ruins of Jerusalem would rot for 70 years. If the prophecy were to come true, crowns would topple and empires would crumble. As long as the prophecy was pending, kings avoided gross acts of disrespect toward God lest they provoke his anger. They lived in fear, but they also lived with hope. The hope was that the destruction of the temple marked the end of God's ascendancy or that the Jewish lethargy had allowed the bonds between them and God to slip apart. And the magic number was 70. If 70 years went by without the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy, then Jerusalem would forever remain a plowed field and a haven only to foxes. Belshazzar, grandson and successor to the throne of Nebuchadnezzar, watched the days go by with trepidation. As the end of year number 70 grew closer, Jeremiah's prophecy was well known and well respected. After 70 years, for Babylon had been completed. The then current Babylonian empire was founded by Nebuchadnezzar in the year 3318 or 442 BCE. He reigned for 45 years and was succeeded by his son, evil Moradak, who reigned for another 23 years. Belshazzar saw the months go by until he entered the third year of his reign. In his opinion, the 70 years were over. He rejoiced, but he was not content to be merely joyous. He had to show his contempt of the God whose power he no longer feared. Belshazzar prepared this wild orgasmic feast that has become legendary in the literature of excess. To celebrate, he did something that not even his brazen grandfather had dared to do. He took out the sacred vessels of the temple and used them in his wild drunken revelry. And why not? In his opinion, Jeremiah was wrong. Babylon had survived his deadline and Jerusalem was not being rebuilt. But Belshazzar was wrong. By the morning, he was dead. No Babylonian king, even after raising of, the, of Jerusalem, dared to use its holy vessels. They knew full well that though Judea was but a minor province in the world of real politic, it was a major spiritual force. Bel Shazar's audacity was brutally punished that very night as he was murdered by Darlu the Mede and his son-in-law Cyrus the Persian. Darius offered the throne to Cyrus, but the younger man demurred because Daniel had prophesied that the kingdom of Babylon would pass first to Medea and then to Persia. So it was that a prophecy decided the highest of all affairs of the state the identity of the monarch and the seat of world dominion. Both their reigns were brief. Darius lasted a year and Cyrus less than three. In the year 3392, 
368 BCE, Ahasuerus assumed the throne of the Persian Empire in the capital city of Shushan. He too kept one eye on the calendar. Seventy years, when would they end? Belshazzar blundered miserably and bloodily in his computation. Ahasuerus was determined to do better. According to his calculation, the 70 years ended in the third year of his reign. He celebrated with a fabulous 180-day feast in which the Megillas Esther begins. And he, too, as an arrogant symbol of his newfound security from the Jeremiah prophecy, did something he had never dared to do up until then. He profaned the sacred vessels of the temple. His calculation, too, was wrong, but he was spared from immediate retribution because God's plan called for Ahasuerus to become sire of the man who would finally bring fulfillment to the words of the prophets. Nine years later, Esther came to plead for her people, and Ahasuerus made his famous magnanimous gesture that she might make any request up to half the kingdom, and it, will be, it would be fulfilled. The Talmud says that he told her she might request anything except for something that would interfere with the stability of the kingdom. And what was this thing that would interfere with the stability of the kingdom? It was the building of the holy temple. Let us not forget that at this time, Ahasuerus had no idea that his queen was a Jew, nor had she ever given him any reason to think that the half-finished, long-neglected temple was any interest to her. Nevertheless, when he made an offer as generous as any husband had ever made to a distraught wife, he felt it necessary to caution her that in all the world there was one request that he could not grant because it, it would irreparably disrupt the stability of the kingdom. The temple must not be rebuilt. Thus, it should be absolutely clear that despite the fact that only 42,000 Jews had returned home, the holy city and the holy land were very much on the minds of all the rulers. Jeremiah had spoke of 70 years from Babylon before the Jews would be remembered by God, and Daniel spoke of 70 years from the destruction of the temple. As we have seen, the kings of the period dreaded the climax of these 70 years, and each in turn attempted to determine when they would end. Uh, ha, I can't pronounce this. Hal Sagaris, he's a masterful compilation of Halakha, Agadah history, and Ethereal Purim, and, and Megillah. He, he formed a chart to show when this 70 years was. And um, I was going to put this chart up there, and I forgot to do it. So let me do this real quick on this chart because I want to let y'all know where the 70 years actually. Um, began and ended. They call it the mysterious 70 years. The. Uh, they determined this gentleman determined that the 70 years began in the year 3318 which was when Nebuchadnezzar assumed the throne of Babylon. 
It ended in the year 3,408, which would be 70 years, and Darius orders the construction of the temple to begin again. It was 70 years since the destruction of Jerusalem. That's where the 70 years were supposed to uh, come. The reason they were, they were miscalculating was they were picking the wrong starting time as to when the 70 years were, um, were to be calculated from. At first glance, the varying interpretation of the mysterious 70 years may seem strange. Didn't the prophet convey the exact meaning of his words? And didn't the Torah sages understand? The prophet understands what God wants him to understand and conveys what God wants him to convey. The present exile that we are in today will end one day. That it will is one of Maimonides' 13 principles that are the very basis of Jewish belief. When that day comes, the redeemed Jewish nation will understand the true meaning of the many prophecies dealing with exile and with redemption. We will then understand how the prophets foretold the conditions of exile and the deliverance from it. But their words will remain murky and obscure until then. It was never God's purpose to give us a history book in reverse, clearly outlining the exact course of all future events. Often the prophet himself may not understand the full import of the heavenly words that he's, that he's to convey, and they are conveyed through his lips. One of the pivotal prophecies in Jewish history was the declaration of Abraham. Your offspring shall be aliens in a land not their own, and they will serve him, and they will oppress them 400 years. This is in Genesis 15, 13. When would the 400 years begin? Would there be a full 400 years of slavery? Would the entire period be spent in one land? It was not until the Exodus that these questions were answered. Not until the Jews were freed exactly 400 years after the birth of Isaac that it was clear that God in his mercy dated the 400 years from the birth of Isaac rather from some later date. When God wants his people to understand his words clearly, he makes them known clearly. But countless prophecies, including those foretelling the coming of the Messiah, the ultimate redemption, and the end of days, were not meant to be explicitly clear. Yeshua said it so many times. That's for my father to know. My father will let us know, you know. The Messiah is, is, um, is, is hidden. He's not really... He's hidden from the Jewish people that don't want to see him for a reason. And we'll know that clearly when the time comes. Only a few weeks after the Exodus, the Jews were attacked by Amalek. The prayers of Moses, the leadership of Joshua, and the faith of the Jews resulted in a great victory. A victory that was followed soon by the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. The miracle of Purim was climaxed by another victory over Amalek. One of the three commandments required of Israel upon settling the land was the obliteration of Amalek. The commandment, you must blot out the memory of Amalek, is still read annually in all Jewish congregations on the Sabbath before Purim. And it is a commandment that must be fulfilled before the final redemption can be accomplished. Superficially, it would appear that this commandment is an act of revenge for a vicious sneak attack that happened in the year 2448. 
The many comments of the sages and later, the com and later commentators make it abundantly clear, however, that Amalek is the very embodiment of evil on earth and that the attack in the desert was a symptom, an indication of an incurable spiritual malaise. It is for this reason that God says that neither his name nor his throne can be complete until the seed of Amalek is wiped from the face of the earth. Mercy is a Jewish trait. So much so that our sages question the Jewish ancestry of a cruel person. Nevertheless, there are times when soft-headed mercy is nothing more than a euphemism for cruelty. The kind mother who indulges her child in, an, in just a, um, a desire of this sweet tooth and constantly gives them the sweets deserves anyone's, doesn't deserve anyone's sympathy, sympathy when the dentist has to do his work on their, on their teeth. But on the other hand, the cruel mother who supervises her, her beloved brother's um, dietary habits and temporarily snatches away things that aren't good for them to eat will get a lifetime of gratitude by raising a healthy child. Human concepts of right and wrong Mercy and cruelty are of necessity limited to the overriding fact of our very humanity. The sensitive human might well feel revulsion at the commandment to murder an Amicalite in cold blood. It flies in, in the face of everything we've been taught about the sanctity of life and the virtues of compassion. But compassion and weakness are not always synonymous. The source of goodness and mercy is God. When he, in his supreme wisdom, decrees that the war against Amalek is the road to human perfection, then there is only one true course of mercy. As soon as Saul was anointed king of Israel, he was commanded to wage war against Amalek. He was no simple farmer's son, this new king. He was head and shoulders above the rest of his people, spiritually as well as physically. In his entire lifetime, it says he committed just one sin. I don't know that that's true. David was 28 years old when Saul became king. Not merely a stripling tending herds as disjointed history may have told us, may have led us to believe. And still Saul was chosen over David as Israel's finest son. In his great test, he was given the assignment of, of completing the task begun by Moses and Joshua 438 years earlier to eradicate Amalek completely, even its livestock. Saul, the righteous Saul, fell into the trap that was to cost him his throne. He substituted his own concept of mercy for God's. He thought he would be more merciful than the merciful God. He attacked Amalek, and a victory took place, but not a total victory. The people and Saul both found the commandment more than they could fulfill. One man above all was spared. His name was King Agag. He was ruler of the evil nation. Because he was spared, he lived with his wife, and she conceived. She survived and gave birth. Many generations later, a descendant of Agag 
born because of Saul's misplaced mercy, entered the stage of Jewish history, and his name was Haman. And because of an act of human mercy in opposing God's absolute and ultimate mercy, the Jewish people were threatened with extinction. The popular impression of David is that of a bloody conquering king, unable to build the holy temple because he was a man of war, not of peace. The impression is typical of the shallow readings of the prophets, of which most of us are guilty. David was truly a man of peace and mercy. The fallen of his wars were like offerings on the divine altar, and he was not permitted to build the temple because his people could not measure up to this level of purity and righteousness. When his son Absalom rebelled and drove David from Jerusalem, the exiled king was pelted with stones and bitter curses by Shemin ben Gerah, a prophet, a teacher of Solomon, and an unreconciled member of Saul's family. Shemini was a rebel against the person of the king who was liable to the death penalty. And David's loyal followers, led by Abishai ben Zeruiah, begged for permission to kill Shemini. Why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? I will go on ahead and take off his head, he said. But David refused. Even in his hour of deeper, deepest anguish and hurt, his compassion did not desert him. He said, let him be. Let him curse, for Hashem has told him to. Perhaps Hashem will see the tears in my eye, and Hashem will repay me with goodness instead of his curse to this day. 2 Samuel 16. So Shemini lived and had children and descendants thanks to David's mercy. One of his descendants entered the center stage of Jewish history many generations later. And his name is Mordecai. Not for naught did the Jews of Esther's time say, See, and Yehudi of the tribe of Judah did for me and what Benjamin caused me. Let, me. let me do that again. See what a Yehudi of the tribe of Judah did for me and what a Benjamite caused me. What did a Yehudi do for me? David did not kill Shemini, and Mordecai was born of him. What did a Benjamite cause me? Saul, who was a Benjamite, did not kill Agag, and Haman was born of him to oppress the Jews. There are two kinds of mercy. The true kind that produced Mordecai, and the false kind that produced Haman. The history of the Jewish people up to the Babylonian exile was replete with miracles. In virtually every generation, a Jew could reinforce his belief through miracles with which he saw himself or tales of such miracles from first-hand witnesses. A visit to the Holy Temple itself was a miracle. It was an opportunity to see the hand, the active hand of God. True. Jewish belief is not based on miracles. Belief must feed on deeper roots. Miracles can be rationalized, explained away, and even misinterpreted. Reliance on miracles, even undue emphasis on miracles, 
can actually dilute belief because it can make one forget that the hand of God is present in, in, in what, for lack of a better, better name, we refer to as nature. As it was at the splitting of the Red Sea when the Jews left Egypt, it is not simply a pretty turn of phrase when we thank God in the Shimonai Israel for the miracles that were done to us this very day. Life exists because God makes it exist constantly. Without his life-giving activity, the universe would cease to exist. To the extent that the early history of the Jews is a chain of miracles and divine intervention, it is itself a veiled picture of God. The very emphasis on God's miraculous activity can make one forget that his guidance is everywhere. The Hebrew word for world is olam. It comes from the root word that means hidden. For in this world, the existence of God is hidden. People may pray three times a day and observe mitzvahs scrupulously, yet they are convinced that their business, professional, or military success is based on hard work, education, capital investment, superior strength, better planning, etc. Isn't God at least an equal partner in their success? Of course he is. But he's a, he's a silent partner. He's an unseen partner. So silent and unseen that his very participation can be questioned. This is the purpose of Olam, world hiddenness, to test man to find truth in the murkiness. The non-believer will always find basis for doubt and blasphemy. God does not drill faith into our minds and hearts. He places us in an Olam, a world of hiddenness, and he expects us to find our way to the truth because he has given us enough tools, just enough tools, to find the truth if we really want to find it. God's name does not appear in the Megillah, the scroll of Esther. The only one of the 24 sacred books of which such a phenomenon occurs. These hidden appearances of his name are still marked in contrast to the rest of the Tanakh. The miracle of Purim happened at the end of the Babylonian exile a time when God was behind a myriad of veils of concealment, a time when Jews were asking the potent, tragic sincerity of whether they owed him more allegiance than a wife spurned or a slave set free. And the miracle happened in Elam, a spiritual forlorn province that was almost devoid of Torah. Torah was not allowed in this Persian Empire. Yet it was at that time and in that place that the random links began coming together and forming chains of salvation, chains eternally binding the Jews to the earliest days when God was everywhere. The miracle of Purim showed, that, showed them that God was still everywhere and would always be everywhere. In the heavenly order, Malkot, which is kingship, represents the final stage of God's will, his revelation on earth. It is the culmination of a lengthy chain of events resulting in his revelation. Nowhere more than in the Megillah Esther is this revealed. In the Megillah, God's name does not appear, but when all is done, his presence was recognized everywhere.
Every piece fit. His jigsaw puzzle was perfect. And Esther could truthfully tell the sages that everyone knew it. Everyone realized that, God's rules, that God rules the affairs of man directly as he had in Egypt or the land of Israel or from the concealment of nature and his co coincidence as he had in Shushan because he does not appear in the Megillah. He is there more, meaningfully, more meaningfully than in any other sacred book. It is in the Megillah that we see Malkot, kingship, the final emanation of God's infinite wisdom and power as it is manifested in the apparently mundane affairs of this planet. This may be the deeper reason why God is alluded to in the Megillah by the word Hamelech, which is the king. It is in this guise of the eternal natural rule of earth that his essence is represented most truly. No, he's not concealed. God is not concealed. He only seems to be. It is for us to find him in every event of our lives. Megillah Esther shows us how, if we but read its directions, if we just look, if we just take the effort to look, we will find him. So I'm going to um, close out this by uh, talking a little bit about Purim and giving a little bit more details as to w what we do, what it is, and how we celebrate it. Um, how much time do I have? That clock's not right back there. A few minutes. The Jolly Festival of Purim is celebrated every year on the 14th of the Hebrew month of Adar, which is this coming Thursday, March 21st. Purim 2019 begins on Wednesday night, because, you know, uh, Hebrew days begin at dark, at sun sunset, March 20th, and continues through Thursday, March 21st, or March 22nd in Jerusalem. It commemorates the salvation of the Jewish people in ancient Persia from Haman's plot to destroy, kill, and annihilate the Jews, young and old, Infants and women in a single day, as recorded in the Megillah, the book of Esther. By the way, those of y'all that came in late, if you've never gotten one of these, this is um, Art Scroll's very first publication. Art Scroll actually started in 1976. Their sole purpose was to um, translate the Hebrew scriptures from Hebrew or Aramaic into English so that English-speaking world would, would be able to study Torah from a Jewish perspective. And uh, since this original work, they put out over 2,000 additional works since then. And they do some great work at, uh, at giving the English-speaking world understanding of the Torah. Um, instead of going into the story, we're all going to get that during the play. But Purim means lots. That's what the word means in ancient Persia. The holiday was thus named since Haman had thrown lots to determine when he would carry out his diabolical scheme. You can pronounce this name in many ways. Some people pronounce it Purim. Uh, among Westerners, it, always, it is, it is all, almost always Purim. Purim, I hope I'm saying that right. Some Central European communities call it Purim. Um, some of the observances we do is we read the, the Megillah, the Book of Esther, which recounts the story of the Purim miracle. This is done once on the eve of Purim, and then again on the following day, uh, this 
slide that I put up here is Zedaka, giving money or gifts to at least two poor people, sending gifts of two kinds of food to at least one person. Zedaka is a very important, um, not just at this time of year, but it's a very important concept of, of uh, Judaism. I mean, of just being a believer, you know? Um, this shows some of the uh, gifts of food that you can give to a person. A, a Purim feast is often includes like wine and other intoxicating beverages. It's, one, it's, it's, it's like a Jewish party, you know? It's, it's, a big, it's a big festive time. Some of the Purim customs, there's a spirit of liveliness and fun on Purim that is unparalleled in the Jewish calendar. If there were ever a day to let loose, and just be Jewish, this is it. It is also customary for children and adults if they desire to dress in costumes. There'll be a lot of costume parties. Um, one of the reasons I, one of the people that I know in Messianic Judaism at Beth Yeshua down in uh, Macon, they have a children's party of costume party and then they also have like uh, an adults party where they get a hotel banquet room and, 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 and dress up in costumes and stuff. A, a traditional Purim food is um, that triangle cookie, which is called a, help me with this, hamatashkin. There you go, hamatashkin. Um, on the day before Purim, it is customary to fast, commemorating Esther's fasting and praying to God that he would save his people. Um, we know when we celebrate it, the significance of Purim is that... Um, in addition to the miracle of the Jewish survival, despite the efforts of our enemies, Purim celebrates God's intimate involvement in every aspect of this world. Even though there are no overt miracles recorded in the Megillah, indeed, his name is not even mentioned once, God was actively pulling the strings to care for his nation. We're... Um, in the year 5,779, and the Jewish people are still thriving. They are still striving, th thriving. So God is still at work in his life. Um, these are some, some, some Purim facts that I think you'll be interested in. All too often, Jewish communities have narrowly escaped catastrophe. More often than not, the plot involves an evil tyrant who follows the ways of Haman. And just like the Purim story, God is there to save his people from this certain doom. Some communities make it their own Purim holiday on the anniversary of this date of their respective salvation. Some even read the chain of events that specifically made the Megillah scrolls. In modern times, the plans of some of Israel's worst enemies have been thwarted on this day. In the early 1950s, Joseph Stalin, the ruthless butcher of millions of innocent people, had bloody plans for dealing with the Jewish problem in the USSR. Just as things were reaching the crisis point in 1953, he died on Purim. In 1990, Saddam Hussein of Iraq defiantly invaded nearby Kuwait. A pressure ramped up from the international community, his army began firing Scud missiles into Israel. The Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Men Shmirson repeatedly assured the people of Israel that they would be protected. After the U.S. forces attacked Iraq, they were quickly victorious and the hostilities ended. Y'all remember how quick that war was? How quick they went in there and did that? It ended 
on Purim. Isn't that interesting? There are no coincidences, I don't believe, you know. So, okay, we're about out of time now. So God, throughout the, the centuries, throughout, the, throughout time, has protected his people. And he will continue to protect his people. There's a, there was a, um, Aish.com is a really good source to read um, the Torah portions each week and um, some different thoughts. And they have, have uh, this Rabbi David Foreman has this wonderful teachings where he has these videos and stuff. Well, the three weeks leading up to this week, they had a... Um, uh, a, a story that continued about the survival of the Jewish people for three weeks. And uh, that was really, really interesting. Um, it was under the this Torah tour portion section of that. And also today is the beginning of the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus was um, the book that my class in 2013 began Torah study on. And that included Terry and... Um, Daphne and, and um, uh, Lenina, who's not here, and, and, and so many of us, uh, Kathy, myself, uh, Lance and Shaney were in that class, you know, and uh, it, was, it was this Torah portion that we began on in, uh, six years ago, you know, and it was, um, it's, it, it is the Torah portion that the children of the Jewish people began to study first. It's the Torah portion that uh, gives you the, the laws of the priesthood and all of the, uh, uh, the, the festivals and the details of the festivals. It's, a, it's an awesome um, book of Torah, and the very beginning book is introducing you, introducing you to that, and that begins today. So those of you that are studying Torah, the, the beautiful thing about the Torah portions is they follow the biblical calendar. And when you, when you engross yourself in the Torah and you, you think that once you've done it, once you've done it, well, that's just not the way it works. The more you do it over and over and over again, it just gets getting richer and richer and deeper and deeper. And, and every time you do it, you learn more and you, it becomes even more a part of you. And that's the, that's the beauty of the Torah cycle. So let's end with a word of prayer. Avinu Shabashamayim, our Father in heaven. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this word. Thank you for um, allowing me to be able to do this this morning. Thank you for all of the people that have come together in your house on your day to draw nearer to you, Father. I pray that as we go through this service today, that we would, um, we would do your will and we would draw nearer to you. and We would each be touched by your presence this day. Be with us as we go out into the world. May those that come in contact with us see you in us in all that we do, and may we represent you well. In Yeshua's name I pray. Amen. Amen.